Well, good morning, church. Hey, why don't we thank Brad and Marley for coming all the way from Sierra Bible to, to serve us this morning. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. I love when churches come together and work for the kingdom. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, mothers, also today, as you leave, if you did not get a bouquet of flowers, you can build your own. Or have your kids build it for you if you are so inclined. And... Uh, you don't have to be a mom in the traditional sense. Some of you are moms to all of us. Uh, and so this is for all the ladies. There will also be some uh, special snacks and treats out there provided by the men's ministry. So <laughs> we'll see what we get. It's going to be great. Well, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Brandon McCaughey. I'm the, uh, the pastor here at Cornerstone and. Uh, it's really good to, to have you all here uh, to just rejoice in who the Lord is and, and uh, be in his word and fellowship together. So nice to see you. And if you haven't got to hang out with me yet, I'm still waiting for some of you to give me a call. I'm always available, coffee or lunch. I uh, would love to, to get to know you, have you over to our house for dinner, whatever it may be. So uh, many of you have taken me up on that offer and I told my wife, the other day, I think we had like five days out of six in someone else's home for dinner, which was great because I don't have to buy groceries anymore. So, you know, I'm, this is maybe my strategy for surviving an incline. Who knows? <laughs> uh, well, we just want to again say happy Mother's Day. And this morning, we are going to be in week four of our seven-week series through the book of Titus. So I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, if you need a copy of the Bible, just put up your hands. Uh, one of our ushers would gladly bring you a copy this morning. And again, if you don't own one and you want a copy, just write your name in that one and take it home. It's all yours. Um, so little background for, for where we've been. Paul has left his traveling companion Titus on the island of Crete with the task of organizing the church by appointing elders who would shepherd the church in godliness, truth, and love. Now this job was urgent for Paul because false teachers had infiltrated the church community and were teaching a message that required, you know, these legalistic requirements that were added on to the word of God. Uh, they were requiring the believers there in Crete to follow Jewish myths and other man-made commandments in order for them to have true faith. Now, Paul tells Titus that the way he needs to combat these false teachers is to have qualified elders appointed who would give the church sound instruction and who would silence any false teaching that was happening in their midst. Now, as we work through Paul's teaching, we will again see that some of what Paul says is difficult for us to hear in our current culture. I know many of us have had small group discussions that have been hopefully quite fruitful so far. And I would encourage you to wrestle with the truth of God's word. Now, even though some of these sayings seem difficult or out of context, or you're looking at it going, does this apply for me today? I would ask you to just wrestle with the truth and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you all wisdom as you seek his truth in the word of God. 
See, all the teachings here in Titus chapter 2 are under this heading. Right there in verse 1. And the heading is sound doctrine. Right beliefs. And since sound doctrine is only found in God's word, and God's word does not ever change, when Paul writes this 2,000 years ago, it is still applicable for us today. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is primarily a, a, a few verses devoted to Christian ethics. And it reminds us that God's word is concerned about what holy living should look like. God's word points us to how we are to conduct ourselves in both word, thought, and action. Matthew Henry reminds us this. He says, the true doctrines of the gospel are sound doctrines. They are in themselves good and holy and make the believers so. The sound doctrine leads you to a life of holiness. And if a Christian is going to do what is right, we must first know what God says is holy. That we might become holy as he is holy. So this is step one in the Christian faith of growing in holiness. Having sound doctrine as our firm foundation. Now with that, let me invite you all to stand as we read God's word together with one voice. The words will be up on the screen for you and let's, let's read these words with some conviction. There, there's some uh, hard stuff in here, but it's going to be great. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we thank you again for the gift of your word. We ask that you would teach us today by your spirit. That we would be a people who are committed to holding to sound doctrine even when that doctrine rubs our culture the wrong way. Teach us what is good and right that we might honor you, glorify your holy name and be a light to this dark and dying world. We ask this all in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. You may be seated.
So when Paul begins Titus chapter 2, his primary concern is to promote the same godliness, the same holy living, not just in the community of unbelievers as he's been talking about before, but within specifically the marriage and family relationships and in their vocations, their work. See, Paul's desire is that in every area of life, believers are living out the grace of God. And so Paul's going to give Titus specific instructions about how he should focus his preaching. Now in Titus chapter 2, he is again highlighting the truth that sound doctrine is essential to holy Christian living. Now if you haven't got that point yet, this is the point. The whole way through, sound doctrine is essential to holy Christian living. Your faith is entirely tied to what you believe. And having right beliefs grounded on the, the firm foundation of God's word is the only way for a believer to live. Now, the very first verse of chapter 2 reiterates this point that Titus, Paul has been making to Titus even back in chapter 1. And he tells Titus, but as for you, as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So he's telling Titus, regardless of what other people are teaching, you must teach the things of God's word. Because biblical teaching is essential for the Christian faith. And so if we're going to live a life that honors the Lord in, in everything that we do, that first part must be sound doctrine. And sound doctrine doesn't just give us facts about the Bible. It's not a checklist of, of right beliefs that you go down. It's not informational. It's transformative. Sound doctrine is what transforms our hearts and minds by the truth of God's word. Now as a side note, I want to give you a reminder. Because no preacher or teacher, however well they might preach or teach, is capable of applying the word for every situation and every person in this room. Uh, if I did, my sermons would be like six, seven hours long. You would, you would die. Now the application of the word of God is the primary responsibility of the Holy Spirit. You thought I was going to say you. It's the primary responsibility of the Holy Spirit. But what is your responsibility? Soft hearts. And a, a heart that, that prays to the Lord and says, Lord, teach me by your will. I, I pray that almost every Sunday before I preach my sermon. Fill us with your spirit that we might know you and be changed by your word. Because if the Holy Spirit is not here working in our hearts, then whatever I'm telling you from God's word is going to go in one ear and out the other. Having a soft heart to the truth of God's word is your responsibility. So before you come in and sit in this room, I would encourage you, make it your practice, your habit. Maybe it says you're walking from the car to the foyer to say, Holy Spirit, teach me today. Transform me by your word. Give me a soft heart that I would hear what you would have for me today. That is a great habit to have, amen? All right, side note, done. Now the rest of our passage focuses on five specific groups within the church. Older women, older men, younger men, younger women, and then bond servants. 
And, and I'm going to highlight kind of how Paul tells Titus to address each particular group. And as a side note, uh, I'm not going to put you in those groups. You can decide. Um, men, you know who you are. Women, if you want to be in the younger or older group, surely I'm not going to tell you which one you're in. It's Mother's Day. You can pick. It's fine. <laughs> but the first thing I want to point out is, is why Paul has this motivation to tell Titus to specifically teach these members of the church in this way. Now, let me give you the example. Paul tells Titus how to teach the older women in the congregation. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children. You see, Paul is telling these older women that their motivation for seeing their own lives transformed by the truth of God's word is so that they can be an example to the younger women in the church. So they can be an encouragement to them in their walk of, of faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is reminding these older women that their walk with the Lord is not a private matter. Now, I'm going to say this all the time. Your relationship with Jesus is not just between you and him. It's a group project. How many of you heard me say that before? Group project. Our faith is dependent upon the faith of everyone else in this room. Now, you make your own decisions. You walk your own path. But the reality, church, is that everything in Scripture points us to the truth that this is a project that we need to take on together. And Paul is telling these older women that their walk with the Lord can't just be about them and Jesus. It affects the entire congregation. And they should be motivated to live a holy lifestyle from a desire to encourage the younger women in the church. So all you older ladies out there, again, I'm not boxing you in. You pick the categories. Have you thought about how your faith is an example to the younger women in the church? Do you make decisions? Do you do specific things? Do you serve? Do you love others with a heartbeat that says, I'm doing this to honor the Lord, but also to be an example to those younger in the faith that need to see my life as an example of holy living? Have you thought about how your behavior and your speech sets the tone for the younger women who are looking to you as an example. And whether they say it or not, they're looking to you. This is true across the board. We look at each other's example and we are either encouraged or discouraged. Now Paul says the same thing when he's speaking to the younger women, except he puts a little caveat on it. Second part of verse 5 says that the word of God may not be reviled. See, Paul says that a young woman's motivation for living a holy life is so that the word of God is not dishonored. That an unbeliever looking at your faith sees the word of God as truth because you live it. See, this comes up again when Paul gives an exhortation to Titus himself in just a few verses on how he's to be an example to the congregation in living this life of, of sound words and dignity, of, of appropriate purity and character. Titus must think about how his example impacts the rest of the congregation. This should be a habit we all 
take on. Because Paul is setting up a principle for us here. And that principle is that our Christian life, our character, our obedience, our behavior, our words, and our example must always take into consideration the well-being of our brothers and sisters in this church family or in whatever church family you're part of. My life should be an encouragement to you and vice versa. And together we should be pointing each other to the lives that live faithfully. Lives that point one another to love and good deeds in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritan William Bates writes this. He said, precepts instruct us what things are our duty. But examples assure us that they are possible. I like that. Precepts instruct us what things are our duty, but examples assure us that they are possible. When we see men like ourselves who are united to frail flesh and in the same condition with us to command their passions, to overcome the most glorious and glittering temptations, we are encouraged in our spiritual warfare. But that's so true. When you see someone overcoming difficult circumstances because their faith is strong. How encouraged is your own faith? When you see someone overcoming adversity and, and just beat down by this world, giving glory and honor to the Lord despite all that, how encouraged is your own faith? Paul's reminding us all that our desire to grow in grace is not just for our own personal relationship with Jesus but has an impact on the well-being of the entire family. This is a tremendously important truth, church, and so vital as we live together in community here at Cornerstone Community Church. The decisions that you make in your home, in your workplace, in this community, affect, good or bad, your church family. And Paul is saying we need to remember that our character, our speech, our behavior should be an encouragement to one another as we live out our lives. Now notice also that Paul's concern is that God's truth would be brought to bear on every Christian area of life. Not, not just in the home, but in your workplace, in the community, in, in the way you treat your children, everything. Every Christian, every person in this room is in a different stage and situation in life. And those stages have different challenges, temptations, and opportunities. So Paul is telling Titus that each one of us need to take God's word and apply it to those particular circumstances. And he breaks them up into these five different categories, and I'm going to start with the older men. Gents, he says in verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, Paul's doing two things here. First, he's talking about the character of older men in the church. And then he talks about how their spiritual health is revealed to the rest of us through their faith, their love, and their perseverance. He speaks about how older men need to be temperate, honorable, disciplined in their behavior. And it's important for older men to remain faithful to the end. To stay the course and finish the race well. 
by living in moderation, living honorably, and being respectable and self-controlled with mature judgment and proper restraint. Titus is told to encourage these older men in their character. So older gents, again, you know who you are. Does your character reflect a life submitted to the Lord? That the younger men in this church can look at and say, hey, they have stayed the course through ups and downs, through thick and thin. They have remained faithful. Paul does almost the same thing with the older women in the church. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now Paul tells older women to, three different things. To have a reverent way of living with character that is an example to others. All the while teaching the younger women to live like they are. Older women are told to be reverent, respectful, not slandering people with their speech. And not addicted to too much wine. Doesn't say you can't have any wine. It says too much wine. Their character should be evidence of God's transforming grace in their lives. And they are to teach by their example. By the way that they live. So that, so that the young ladies in this church can look at their lives and, and say, I want to be just like them. Faithful. The older women should have a desire to encourage the younger women in the church. Women who are younger than them in the faith that need that example of godly living. Now in verses 4 and 5, the older women kind of get, you know, the brunt of this for the record. And I didn't assign this on Mother's Day to, to make you feel bad. This is just how it kind of laid out. But he says to the older women in verses 4 and 5, Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now apparently in the Cretan culture, it was not a sure thing for a young wife to have any affection for their husbands or children. I don't know how that works, but he's addressing it, so clearly it was an issue. Paul is reminding the Cretan believers that they are obligated to love their families. The, the, the younger women need to love their husbands even when they're not so lovable. You know who you are. It's me sometimes. We're all there, you know. Paul reminds the older Christian women that it is their obligation to train the younger women up. And one of the most significant ministries in the church is, is having an older woman come alongside a younger mother or a young woman in the faith and disciple them and mentor them as they walk. Now the church, church should be concerned with helping young couples learn the ropes of Christian marriage, right? Because it's not so easy sometimes. And we all need help with it, whether we, we admit that or not. And unfortunately, this is one of those areas where the church has largely pushed people outside to, to counselors and to other places instead of saying, hey, this is our responsibility to train up husbands to love their wives and, and wives to, to love and serve their husbands. Now, 
The next thing Paul says is to the young men. And it seems like they kind of get gypped here. Because all he says in verse 6 is, young men, be self-controlled. You think, oh, wow. We got this big long list and the young men get self-controlled. Except how many of you know a young man? This is the issue, right? If they can conquer this one issue, pretty much most of the other things kind of fall into place. We all know this is true, right? <laughs> so even though it's just this, you know, little verse for the young men, it's a fairly large ask. Young men, gents, be self-controlled. Now I'll tell you, this was, not, this was not my shining moment as a young man. Living a life of self-control. But I will also say that all the heartache that comes in life is often from neglect of this principle, this discipline. This is a fruit of the spirit that young men need to put on daily, maybe hourly, maybe every few minutes. Because self-control is the way that a young man learns to harness what God has given him and direct it appropriately. You see, when, when Paul's talking about self-control, I want to be very clear. He's not talking about some sort of self-denial that refuses to partake in the good things that God has given. I think the church has failed in this pretty horrifically over the years. Right? The, the old adage is, you know, don't, don't have sex, don't drink. Don't dance, don't do, all the, don't do all the things. That's what we tell people. And then you'll be holy. Except all those things are good and were created by God. They need to be used with some self-control in their proper context. So sex within the confines of the marriage bed is appropriate and good. And we should tell young men that it is. And that the requirement is not that that's a bad thing. But that self-control causes you to wait for the right time. Same with, with drinking or any of these other things that historically the church has said, just, just put them off. Don't touch them. They're bad. And then, of course, young men in their rebellion, what do they do? They run after all those things. And then they do them to the nth degree. Instead of learning to do them in moderation. Where self-control is applied. And so when Paul talks about self-control, he means that we should enjoy God's created order, but in a way that never allows us to become enslaved to it. See, because sin is a deceiver, and it will always enslave you. And when you abuse the things that God has given you, you become a slave to those things. And self-control goes right out the window. Now, in verse 7 and 8, Paul actually shifts his focus to Titus himself. And he directs some, some very specific instructions to Titus about how he should pastor. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I would love this to be true of me at the end of my career. Where I could look back and say they have nothing evil to say about him. He stayed the course. He remained faithful to the word of God. 
through all the ups and downs of ministry, he was, he was devoted. Of course, these qualities are not optional for young men, young older men, young women, older women. They are applicable to us all. But, but Paul's point is that elders, pastors, and teachers must be especially careful to model the good works of integrity and dignity. Paul's not calling us to live a life of perfection. Again, if that was the case, that we'd have no pastors or elders in the church. The Lord wants leaders who are honest with him and with the people and who are diligent to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now the last thing Paul says is he writes to bond servants. Verses 9 and 10 tell us this. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, Christian slaves or bond servants in Paul's day had some of the greatest opportunities to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Because the lazy slave was a stereotype in Cretan culture. Uh, and be, believing slaves who were well-pleasing to their masters, Paul says, would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's a beautiful phrase. To adorn literally means to take precious jewels and arrange them to show their true beauty. To take precious jewels and arrange them so as to show their true beauty. And I'm not a jeweler, but I know that when you have a diamond and you chisel it off, you're trying to get it to this place where it reflects the light perfectly. That there's the imperfections don't shine through, but the, but the rock itself adorns the light. Now, now the gospel doesn't really need our adornment, right? It's beautiful in and of itself. But what Paul is saying is that we are called to show the beauty of the gospel by the way that we live. We often think that we need better words to adorn the gospel. I'll share the gospel if I just had the right things to say. Words are important. We should say the right things. But Paul's saying what we really need are holy lives that reflect the truth of the gospel. So much so that you don't even need a position of authority to adorn God's word. You can be a bondservant, the lowest person in society, and adorn the gospel of God's grace with your hard work, with not being argumentative, by being honest by not stealing from your employers. All of these were tangible ways that Paul says a bondservant can demonstrate their faith and adorn the doctrines of God. Now this, this idea of bondservants, we can take that and apply it to our employer-employee relationships today. It's the most, none of you are bondservants that I know of. No? I mean, some of you might be slaves to your employers because they work you like dogs. But, you know, that's a whole other issue. But scripture compels each one of us to be hard workers. To not steal from our employers, to not argue with our supervisors. Ooh, that's a hard one. Whether or not our employers are believers or unbelievers, it actually doesn't qualify that. Scripture says nothing to do with whether your, your employer is a good employer or not. As an employee, your responsibility 
is to live a righteous life. Whether your employer is fair or unfair, kind or cruel, treats you with respect or not. Whatever your occupation, Scripture tells us this in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Scripture says to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If we had this mindset in the workplace, our life would adorn the doctrines of God in the workplace. If we were willing to submit to the authority God placed over us, whether or not they are good, our life would be a reflection of the, of the, the love and mercy poured out on each one of us by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you, you and I didn't deserve what Christ gave us, but he did it anyways. And in the same way, he's saying, be that reflection in your workplace. Live a life that adorns the gospel, that shows that your true master is no man or woman in this world, but the Lord himself. And you work to serve and honor him first. So make it your goal, church, to work hard for the Lord. Knowing that in your work you are serving him only. Now, one last thought as we wrap up our time. Because Paul is giving us these instructions. And he's given them to all of us. As in our response to God's word must always be in the way that we live. So let me ask you a hard question. I like to do this because mostly I'm asking myself, just for the record. But I think we need to ask ourselves these kind of questions. And the question is, does your way of living adorn the gospel or does it mock it? Does your conduct point people to the truth of who God is? Or does the watching world have another reason to reject Jesus Christ because of the hypocrisy of your faith? Our lives have been purchased and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We've been set free from our sin. We've been given the promise of eternal life in him. Does your life make that truth compelling and sweet? Or does it take away from the truth of what Christ has actually done for you? Now, these are hard questions to wrestle with. And again, my heart is not to guilt trip you. But dedication to the Lord requires sacrifice. And it's not a road of perfection. No one is saying that if you fail, you somehow can't get up and do it better. You can. It's the entire point of the gospel. Is that we are wretched sinners in need of a Savior. And God in his love and his mercy has just been abundantly gracious to us. So if you've been living a life of hypocrisy, it's not too late. Repentance, forgiveness, the grace of God and the mercy of God in your life is always available. Do you know that the one prayer the Lord will never reject is the prayer of repentance? If you come to him and you say, Lord, forgive me, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. You're forgiven. Grace has set you free. And that burden of sin is no longer yours. 
I don't know about you, but when I read chapters like Titus chapter 2 and we have this big long list of all the areas where we fail, it's easy to beat yourself up and think, oh, now I guess I'm just a failure. Yes, we're all failures. And the Lord loves you anyways. And he sent his son to die on your behalf for that failure. So that you can be sons and daughters of the most high God. So it's never too late, church, to submit your life to the Lord. And say, Lord, I'm going to give all that I have to you. I'm going to honor you with my very breath. In my marriage, in my relationships with my children, in my workplace, in my church community. I'm going to submit all I have to you. And yes, I'm going to do it poorly sometimes. But I'm going to look at the examples of my brothers and sisters. I'm going to pick myself up off the dirt when I fall. I'm going to say, look, they can do it, I can do it too. And in that, we set a beautiful example for the rest of us. That God has never finished with us. He never gets to a place where he says, oh, your sin, you know, you reached the sin quota and now you're out. Now, this is not a license to keep sinning, by the way. If you want to read about that, that's a whole conversation in Romans that Paul deals with. That's not our focus today. But allow God to change and mold you into the image of Christ. And as you do that, as he does that in your heart and in your mind, you begin to live out that change in every area of your life, in all these different areas. Saying, Lord, your word told me this. I haven't done it. Tomorrow's the day. Or today's the day. I'm going to start living it. And allow Jesus Christ to transform your heart and mind so that each one of us here adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the truth that even when it pierces to the bone, there is still love and grace and mercy present. And so, Father, today I would pray for each heart here that we wouldn't be discouraged, but we would be emboldened to, to seek a holy life that we would give you all the honor and the glory that this community of Incline Village would see the way that we live and would praise your holy name because you are a good and faithful God. So help us, we pray, Holy Spirit. Change us. Change even the harder hearts in this room who say, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Let us be an example to one another that we might praise your holy name and work together on this journey of faith. We ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.